history can be found anywhere, even in your own backyard. So join us as we search the land, looking for the stories that helped shape this nation. Come on the porch, grab a drink, and join us for a little bit of history from the homestead. Hey there, history buffs, and welcome to the History from the Homestead podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Carroll, and today I'm joined by Brian Snyder, and we're going to be talking about the uh, Helldiver plane crash on Laurel Mountain, PA, near Waterford. So, Brian, why don't you give me a little background about yourself, your blog, everything? Sure. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me, Thomas. Uh, My name is Brian Snyder. I'm actually not a historian. I am a Presbyterian minister, and I pastor a church here in suburban Pittsburgh. Um, I have been a blogger since, oh, for about 15 years now. Uh, I started my blog up in the Allegheny National Forest, and to my knowledge, at the time, I am sure it was the only blog about the Allegheny National Forest. It might still be the only blog about the Allegheny National Forest. It lingers on the web, though I no longer maintain it. It was called the Allegheny Journal. When circumstances brought my family and me down here to Pittsburgh about 13 years ago, um, I looked for places to hike because that's what my blog has been always been about, hiking and backpacking. Um, I was disappointed with the uh, availabilities around here. You have to drive about an hour and a half to get to the really good stuff down in this area. And so out of that disappointment, I named my new blog down here, Snow and Jaggers because I felt like every time I went out, all I ever saw was snow and jaggers. And of course, jaggers in our Northern Appalachian uh, dialect means thorns. So snow and thorns was all I ever found. Uh, It took me a while to actually find better hiking, mostly toward the Laurel Highlands to the Southeast of Pittsburgh. Uh, And so my adventures have taken me that direction quite a bit. And that is how I came upon the the crash, the 1945 crash of the Helldiver that occurred there. Um, I follow the Laurel Highlands hiking trail, Laurel Highlands hiking trail page on Facebook, and that of course is a 70-mile linear trail that runs from the Johnstown area to Ohio Pile atop Laurel Ridge. And uh, I was researching a trip. I wanted to do all 70 miles of it, and I did last summer. Uh, But in preparation for that, um, I found on the page uh, of the Laurel Highlands Hiking Trail uh, this information that there had been this crash. I had never heard of this crash. Um, And that's how I became interested. And that's how I kind of found my way out there. So that's what I'm doing on here, even though this doesn't, uh, I'm not a a historian and not an expert on the subject. Uh, But here I am, and I'm uh, honored to be here. Yeah, and, and the downside of this one is, too, there's just not a lot of information no. even on it to begin with, no matter how deep you dive. You probably, your blog, blog probably has more information than most pages on it. So, and and for anybody that's wondering, what this was, was a, was a Helldiver dive bomber, an SB2C Helldiver, which was uh, developed by the Curtis Wright company in 1940 and it actually didn't make its debut until 1943 because it 
was more of just a mediocre aircraft. It was plagued with technical problems, which may have even led to its crash, but it had handling problems. But it, it was used in World War II in the Pacific Theater. And for what a dive bomber does, and it, it, was, it was a naval dive bomber, it would have been launched from a carrier, they would fly in at high altitude. They'd kind of roll over and dive down at 60, 70, 80 degree angle towards the, you know, whatever warship or target they were at, where they would release their bomb at low level and then basically skim out over the waves trying to avoid anti-aircraft fire. So, and, you know, the Hell Diver, it just, it never panned out. It didn't have the fuel range. It was somewhat underpowered. It didn't have the stability. But it still, it saw plenty of combat in World War II because in World War II, it was all hands on deck. They needed everything they could get. So, and, you know, it was, we don't really know why it crashed on Laurel Mountain. We just, you know, they say, I believe it was foggy. It was really foggy when it crashed. And there was witnesses that saw it, but in the fog, which... So, yeah, if I, if I could interrupt, yeah. um, there are conflicting tales of what happened that day. It was October 9th, 1945. Um, the, the 21 planes in the squadron, I believe it was called, were flying back in formation from Washington, D.C. back to their base in Detroit. And uh, <clears throat> it, was, it was fall. It was October uh, one person who witnessed the the crash, or who witnessed the plane going down at least, uh, said that it was due to fog. But then he also said he was a child at the time. Said that he saw the radio man out on the wing of the plane, trying to save his own life by jumping into the treetops. Uh, nobody knows if that's true. Um, that man's body was found 50 feet from the crash, um, and so we we don't really know. I mean. We don't know what went wrong with the plane. We do know that it turned around to go back east. Uh, it it was, uh, I believe, the the celebration that they were. It was a victory celebration they were flying home from. It was in honor of uh, Chester Nimitz, yeah. who was the the admiral uh, in command of the Pacific fleets, uh, naval fleets during World War II. And I'm sure there's footage of that celebration somewhere. You know, I'm, I'm sure we could find. I'm sure we could see this plane flying with its twenty. Uh, with its 20 uh, fellow planes somewhere, uh, if we were it, to look hard enough. It's it's very possible, which before we got on, I was actually looking. Uh, you can just go to YouTube, Google it. It was the Nimitz Day Celebration, 1945. Mm. I saw yeah. a handful of videos of the parade from New York City and everything, because this was a big deal. I mean, the, the war yeah. had just ended. Right. We, we had just finished the war, and so this was, it was a really really big deal so yeah there are videos of that i didn't i didn't yeah. look at them but you're right you might be able to see see video of those planes flying over possibly yeah and and that is that is the tragedy that drew me to this to this true story i mean these kids parents and i call them kids because i'm 53 and i i have one child the age now of the radio man when he died uh these kids parents knew they were coming home and they never did. You know, they survived that horrific war. And then this ludicrous crash on the side of Sugar Camp Hill 
in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just a tragedy. Uh, and I think it probably is a tragedy that's been left untold by history because there were so many tragedies at that time in history that there's just no telling them all. Uh, there's no keeping up. Yeah, exactly. And and record keeping is is tough. Um, you know, we were talking talking about the pilot and stuff too. We we should at least give their name because we don't even know much about them really. But from what I have, the pilot was uh, Petty Officer George Comia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. I and, hope so too. I've never heard it pronounced. I've only I, ever seen it in writing. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that one. He would have been the pilot, and then there was the ensign Frank Campbell, who was the radio man. And... No, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Can I interrupt? It's the other way around. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> Frank was actually flying the plane. Frank Campbell Frank was flying. The plane. Okay, uh, see, I got that one backwards. Yeah. Okay. And the radio man was was, and Frank was 23 years old, so he was young. But then uh, the radio man George Colmia uh, was 19, so he was okay. quite young. I mean, he was just out of school. All right. See, uh, see, got that one all backwards. But and... yeah, yeah. Frank Cam Frank Campbell was from Valdosta, Georgia, and oh, I've got all kinds of information about these guys. Not not a whole lot, but is is this my time, or do you want me to? This is your time because I I was looking. I don't know a whole ton about them, so yeah, yeah. whatever we can find out about them would be great because they deserve the they deserve to be known. I agree with that. And that's why I wanted to publish on my blog specific directions for how to get to the place where they crashed. Um, so uh, I did the digging that I could without uh, without traveling to Georgia and and Oklahoma uh, to find out more about these guys. Uh, but what I could find online revealed that Frank Campbell, who was the ensign, the, the, the man flying the plane, uh, he was 23 when he died. His father died in the 20s, and so probably about the time he was born. Um, so Frank was an only child, apparently, um, and that's probably why there's almost no information about him online. He didn't have siblings that remembered him. Uh, and his mother died in 1983. Uh, she never remarried, apparently. She was buried beside her husband, who died in the 20s. Um, and uh, I think that, that Frank was her only child. And I think that after he died, she was left alone in the world. Now, he may have had cousins. I haven't been able to discover that. But, you know, the memory of your grandfather or grandmother's cousin is not likely to live on through you. Uh, and so uh, there was nobody left to tell Frank's story. Um, George Comia, on the other hand, is quite the opposite. George Comia came from a family of Lebanese immigrants uh, to, of all places, Oklahoma, Watonga, Oklahoma, uh, which is on the High Plains. And uh, they actually, uh, some of the younger siblings who remembered George, traveled to Pennsylvania to see this site in the early 2000s, in 2003. Uh, and so there are people in Oklahoma, I don't know what it would take to find them, but there are people in Oklahoma who... Um, who know about this. Now, I don't know if any of the siblings are still alive because that was 20 years ago that they came here. Um, but they described, they described George, uh, who was the 19 year old. They described him as a very popular high school athlete. I have found one picture of him online. Uh, it looks like it might be a graduation picture, very handsome young man. Uh, 
And in his obituary, which I did find online, it lists his father as Reverend Comia. And so I've put together this whole, I guess it's a surmise, <laughs> Uh, this whole story of his possible life and legacy. Uh, you know, why people from Lebanon would emigrate to Oklahoma, of all places, it seems unusual. Um, it might have been because, you know, they might have been some a Protestant minority in, in Lebanon, uh, and probably Baptist, I would say, and uh, emigrated to a place where they had connections, uh, religious connections, uh, with the Southern Baptists in Oklahoma, that would be my guess. Um, and so apparently he was from a religious family, Lebanese immigrants, lots of kids, popular college athlete. Uh, and that's all we really know. We know that he, he enlisted of his own free will. He was not drafted. I don't know whether Frank Campbell was drafted or not. Uh, but uh, the siblings said that George enlisted as soon as he could right out of high school. And so that's what I know about George and Frank. Um, I'm sure someone could do a deep, a deep dive here. We don't know if George actually did try to jump off the wing of the plane. Right. Yeah, we, uh, ju we just know he was found about 50 feet, mm -hmm. 50 feet away. So for any of the friends of the show, here's your chance. If you like snooping and digging on the internet, <laughs> here's something for you to snoop and dig at. Cause right. I've been doing that. It's tough, but yeah, these, these guys deserve to have their story told what we know of it. Yeah. As they, and, and that is terrible to survive the war and then a tragic accident like this happens. Yeah. So now you, and which, which, what bothers me is I live only, I don't know, it's about 10, 15 miles from the crash site. I've never oh, wow. been there. You've been. Oh, so wow. what, yeah. let's kind of put it into perspective. What does it take to get to the crash site? Because it's not, you're not just going to drive up to it and there it is. So I think it is possible to drive most of the way. I don't know how. Uh, this is on State Game Lands 42. And that's operated by the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And you would have to get permission and there are gates to be unlocked. But there are roads that run fairly close to the crash site. Uh, within two miles of the crash site and so with the right connections or permissions you could drive pretty close i don't know how to do that um, that is not how i did it i consider myself a hiker and so i had three attempts three to get to the crash site and i finally made it on my third attempt um, my first attempt because i had read about it on the laurel highlands hiking trail web page or not web page uh facebook page i I followed the very poor directions that the, the person who told us about it on that page gave. Uh, and they were very poor indeed. Uh, he said that there was an unmarked trail between mile marker. And, and I don't know if you know this, but uh, the Laurel Highlands Trail has a mile marker every mile of the way. Uh, and so you can say between mile marker 13 and 14, there's a stream where you can get water. Uh, but this was particularly between mile markers 51 to the south and 52 to the north. And the directions were that between those two mile markers, there was an unmarked trail <clears throat> leading to this crash site. And I thought, okay, well, I'm a woodsman. I can go out and find it. I went out in March to look for it. Uh, and there were all kinds of unmarked trails. You know, there were, there were uh, the unmarked trails were legion. 
and knowing which one it was uh, was was difficult. I did a little more research and uh, asked some questions and found that it's not actually so much an unmarked trail as it is an actual forest road um, between those two mile markers that leads down to the trail that goes to the crash site. Uh, but to get to that spot, you kind of have to park. Um, if you take route, uh, what is the highway that runs through Waterford there? Is it 247? 270, 271. 271. 271. If you take I think two, for a second. Yeah, if you take 271 um, up to the Laurel Highlands Hiking Trail parking area at the top of Laurel Mountain, um, you can go that way. And you begin at mile marker, I think it's about mile marker 57. Uh, and you travel past mile marker 52. And then you go downhill. Uh, but if you go that way, there's a lot of up and down. It's a very rocky trail. You have to be in pretty good shape. And it'll take you about four hours, maybe four to six hours uh, to reach the site. And I don't recommend going that way because there is a forest road uh, it, that runs along an old gas line on public land. You're allowed to travel on state game lands. Of course, if it's during hunting season, you'd want to wear fluorescent orange. Uh, but it's a much easier trail if you follow the road. So I would recommend that if you want to get to this site, uh, take the highway out of Waterford east to the top of the mountain um, to, to where you see the blue and white sign that, that tells the, the name of the mountain and the, and the elevation, which I think is like, oh, what is it? Laurel Ridge. Uh, yeah. Laurel, Laurel Hill Summit, Laurel Hill yeah. Summit, 2,743 feet. Uh, when you see that sign on the other side of the road, uh, on the south side of the road, there is a parking area. Uh, and if you just park there and you'll, you'll see to your south, that's opposite the road itself, you'll see a small road that runs out and it's a gated road, but you can walk right around the gate and you're allowed in there. It's public mm -hmm. land. Uh, you, can, you can follow that road for maybe five miles to the first and only intersection that you'll encounter. Uh, at that place, you take a right and you follow the intersecting road down the hill. Uh, and you follow it six tenths of a mile uh, to where it ends. And it ends in an old clearing. Uh, and there will probably still be flags flying in that clearing because I think people have gone here by, by automobile. I think they've taken cars or motorcycles down here. Uh, and somebody has put flags up in the trees where that road ends. Uh, so you go to the crossroads, you go six tenths of a mile downhill. Uh, and then in the far right-hand corner of that clearing, um, there is a little opening into the woods. A trail ducks into the woods there. And you take that trail about two-tenths of a mile. And here, if you've got like a Fitbit on your phone or something to measure your footsteps and your distances walked each day on your phone, you'll be able to, you'll be able to measure these distances. That's how I did it. Then you come to what's called a rock carn or a cairn. It's just a little stack of rocks that people put up to mark the way. At the cairn, you go left, you go three-tenths of a mile, and you'll start seeing a creepy sight. Um, someone has painted on the trees and on the stones nearby uh, a red airplane, and it's faded, and it's a little eerie looking, but it directs you toward the crash site. Um, and if you want, I can uh, direct you to my 
at the end of this interview, I can direct you to my blog, which which lays all of this out in writing, which people which could people could just cut and paste and take into the woods with them uh, to find their way to this crash site. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So, what there's what's there at the crash site? This just I'll, I'll let you tell it because I know what's there, but okay, sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so when you when you get close to the crash site, you you start to see through the trees. I was there and I first reached the place in April. And so all the trees were still dormant and many of the trees are dead in that part of the forest. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, many of the trees were still dormant, but I did start to see red and white through the trees. And of course, people had strung flags up in the trees around the crash site. I'm told that there are hunters from, from the nearby communities who go out there and change out the flags from time to time. Uh, when you get to the crash site itself, there is a nice monument that the local people, not the US government, the, the local people uh, erected in honor of uh, Campbell and Colmia. And it says this, oh, I have it written right here. So they have this uh, a metal plaque that they attach to, to a, a boulder that's out there at the crash site. And it says, in memory of Ensign Frank Z. Campbell, Valdosta, Georgia, Radioman First Class George Colmia of Watonga, Oklahoma, veterans of World War II, who died here October 9th, 1945, when their plane crashed. They were, were returning with their flight of 21 planes from Admiral Nimitz's celebration at Washington, D.C. to their base in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, so that, that plaque is there attached to a boulder. And the most interesting thing, of course, there are flags in the trees, but the most interesting thing is that they hauled the wreckage of the plane away, but the engine was the heaviest part and it was embedded so deeply into the forest floor that they couldn't get it out and they left it. Um, and so the engine of the plane is still there in the forest floor as are many pieces of debris, um, shards of glass, uh, pieces of the engine, things I could not begin to identify, wires, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. And uh, I, I caution people on my blog, it's interesting, pick it up, look it over, but don't take it. Yeah. This stuff doesn't belong to us. This stuff belongs to a story that we're there to honor and to remember, but... For one thing, it's against the law. I mean, this is state yeah. game land 42, yep. and any you're not allowed to take anything from the game lands. Uh, but also, uh, this is not for souvenirs. This is this is just to to go out there and remember these guys. Um, so yes, the the engine is there, the plaque is there. Uh, somebody changes out the little American flags, the kind you see in cemeteries, uh, right adjacent to the plaque, and then somebody puts flags up in the trees. And that's pretty much it. There's green briar everywhere. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it's just a little spot in the forest. It's, it's on the west side of the mountain. And that's how they know that they turned around and tried to get back east. Um, yeah, uh, there's not a whole lot out there. Uh, but but it is, uh, it's a sacred site, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and I want to give anybody an idea. You know, this isn't your car engine there either. These, right. This is a radio aircraft engine, and these mm -hmm. things were monstrous. Yeah. So, and, and I you would know, say, sorry. Yeah. 
No, you're fine. I'm I'm trying to think how how big they exactly were, but other than giant. What I what I saw. So on my blog, I put my a regular day pack, not a big overnight backpack, but a regular day pack uh, with water and stuff in it. I put it right next to the engine so that people could get some sense of scale. Um, I would say it's about four feet in diameter, what I saw. Now, there's probably more sunken beneath the earth there that I did not see. Yeah. So what I did see was about four feet in diameter. Yeah. So, Well, Brian, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Now, you mentioned your blog, so if you could share... Because it's a, it's a really, really, really good blog. There's a lot of good information on it. So everybody should hop over and check it out. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so <laughs> the name of my blog is Snow and Jaggers. Uh, it is, you know, I started keeping this blog only as a personal, uh, a photo journal of my hikes so that I could, uh, you know, go back and look over my own hikes and remember them. And even maybe at a busy day at work, call them up on my phone and, and look at my own pictures uh, and the pictures and the stories are kept there. Now the public is welcome to it, but I don't keep it primarily for the public. It, it, everything on the blog shows up uh, if you do a Google search. But uh, in any case, it's uh, one word, snow and jaggers, S-N-O-W-A-N-D-J-A-G-G-E-R-S dot blogspot.com snowandjaggers.blogspot.com and in the upper left hand corner you could just type in helldiver one word helldiver and that'll take you to the two or three articles that i've written uh about this particular uh tragedy in american history yeah and that's how i found you was looking for information i found your blog wonderful again brian thank you very much for this uh that was a great show it was great talking to you about it thank you so much for having me Be well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Remember, if you like the show, you can share it with all your friends. We can be found on all the major podcast players. Uh, We can be found on Facebook. And you can also find us and catch the show notes at historyfromthehomestead.com.